This is Chapter 128 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we get into the Halloween spirit with a book inspired by a real-life ghost story and another about a family stalked by monsters. Keep listening, if you dare. (laughs) We all know houses can be haunted. Hotels, libraries, lighthouses, and ships can be too. But can a movie be haunted? How about a book or a podcast? That's the question Clay McLeod Chapman asks in The Remaking. The book centers around a single ghost story that gets retold over and over and over again with horrifying results. He tells us about the real-life ghost story that inspired his. I borrowed it. I, I, I guess I should say I found it. Or maybe the story found me, much like little Jessica. But uh, there is a true story that takes place in Pilot's Knob, Kentucky. Uh, the little witch girl of Pilot's Knob. And essentially, you know, she and her mother were accused of witchcraft. They were burned at the stake. Mom was buried out in the woods, but they were much more afraid of the little girl, the little witch. So they buried her in consecrated ground in a church cemetery, wrapped her up in a steel, what was it, a steel-reinforced coffin, uh, like six feet of concrete, poured gravel, and then they put a metal fence of crucifixes, interconnecting crosses around her grave. And that's a, that's true you can go to kentucky and see this grave um but the story is if you go at midnight you can see the little witch girl of pilot's knob wandering along her grave but just don't don't take her hand or she'll pull you underground with her and so we start with that story Mm -hmm. and then it becomes this really cheesy (laughs) 70s horror flick which I am a total fan of. I, you see, one man's cheese is another man's triumph um, Oscar winner. Um, I, yes, it is. Uh, there's like a 70s drive-in schlocker, um, I guess you could say. And then that becomes 20 years later, uh, a 90s, you know, sleek, polished, scream-style remake. And then 20 years later, a serial-style podcast. So why tell the story of the Little Witch Girl in that way, seeing it through these different remakes? I mean, for me, I just thought there's, there's a power to storytelling. And I, I wanted to ask the question of can a story, can a ghost story haunt its audience, its listeners? And, you know, given that media is changing, technology is evolving, storytelling is evolving too. And I I love the idea of taking that that kind of primitive, you know, sitting around the campfire and spinning a yarn and watching it grow and transform and transfer this ghost um, through the various forms of media. And can a film be haunted? Can a podcast be haunted? Can a remake be haunted? And I I think the book says, yes, it can. (laughs) I love that one reviewer described it as a ghoulish game of telephone. Yes, yes, I love it. I love it. And it's it's because um I mean you never know what what film or what book or what you know what form of entertainment is going to what what audience is going to respond to it. And I know that for me there's some books that nobody else has read that I just hold on that that pedestal. And I I think that like giving an opportunity for a ghost story to kind of uh, 
evolve and change uh, and pass hands, um, you realize that storytellers are implicated, audience listeners are implicated. It's a, uh, I don't know, it's a, there's a lot of people involved in that, that, that dynamic. And you're obviously not the only one who's been fascinated by it because within the book itself, you point out certain pop culture references that have really <laughs> engaged imaginations from, you can see things in The Wizard of Oz or The Three Men and a Little Baby and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how the, it, it almost becomes kind of an interactive experience where it's not just watching Three Men and a Little Baby. It's like going back and saying, can you see the outline of that little boy hiding in the window? Or can you see, like, did you ever hear the story about what happened on the set of The Exorcist or on The Omen? And, uh... You, it, it almost charges the experience of watching the movie because you're, you're almost watching something that feels potentially maybe, maybe a little bit more dangerous or just a little bit more electric. Let's also talk about, it's, it's subtle, but it's there with this idea of appropriating mm-hmm. a story that involves two women and belongs to women and we have these men retelling it yes yeah i mean if you say subtle i feel like it's it's almost bludgeoning the reader over the head because i mean i i you know the question is there it's a question that i'm asking myself like i am implicated in this process you know these you have to ask like who gets to tell this these stories who has the right to tell somebody else's story and as the book kind of says um these these two women these these people who are accused of witchcraft they are saying this is our story you have no right to tell this story we are the authors of this story and it is you know they want to be heard and in writing this book i had to implicate myself i had to kind of bring myself into that process so i don't know if there's a sequel, maybe it'll be about an author who wrote a novel about a witch who was haunting the people who read the book. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on from there. But that all being said, like, the men kind of get away a little easy. And it's really your main female character who bears the brunt of their wrath. It's interesting. I mean, yes, Amber is a character who, I mean, she suffers. And she she becomes the kind of, I would say, the 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 true kind of messenger of this story and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh this witch girl jessica uh chose her potentially maybe i should say that in air quotes not to give away too too much um but that this we we come upon amber when she's a child actress and she auditions for the role of the little witch girl and then we come upon her 20 years later for the remake um you know at, at that point Amber is so her her very existence is kind of fused together with the the DNA of this story. Um, I mean, I do think it is a, a matter of sometimes we don't get to choose the stories we we want to tell. Sometimes the story chooses us. Um, and if the men get away with it, I think it's just because I, I maybe they're punished I sh- in their own way. They do get punished in their own way, and I I think that it is that they it's almost like they they recede into like they, their names will kind of like disappear into history but the i think amber for better or for worse uh carries on um i don't know let's check in with her 20 years from now and see what see what she has to we say might have hit upon your your sequel that you're talking about work are you listening publishers <laughs> my editor hello we'll, we'll we'll get the sequel right away is there 
any is this meant to be any sort of commentary on what seems to be an endless cycle of remakes and books and movies and TV? Yes, yes, very much so. I, I mean, I, I find it, you know, heartbreaking that you know someone will go. I was going to say the video store, but nobody goes to the videos <laughs> anymore. The, someone will go to Netflix and they'll see two, two versions of Poltergeist. And one of them was made in the early 80s, mid 80s, and another was made in the kind of early aughts. And, you know, what is that person going to choose? And if they, you know, no, nothing to knock the, the remake, um, you know, it could be any film, any remake. I just feel like we have these, these films that, that I grew up watching and loved. And uh, they, they make these kind of sanitized, you know, kind of... Uh, they. they the remakes take the teeth out of of what made the the original so special. So, I don't know. We're we're in that kind of recycling culture, and it 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 bums me out a little bit. I guess we might also think that we're resigned to it. I mean, you did put an Ouroboros <laughs> on your cover, which for people who aren't immediately familiar with it, that's a snake, a serpent eating its own tail. So the endless loop, and it goes on and on and on. And I, but I mean, I think that. Storytelling is a part of that, too, where, I mean, if you take a story that I, you, you know, you hear a story around the campfire and then you tell it to somebody else and then they tell it to somebody else. And that game of telephone is, in essence, a kind of version of remaking uh, a, a story. And so I, it's not that all remakes are bad, but it's just it's interesting how there are just various kind of permutations or evolutions of a tale, um, some for good, some maybe not so good. So since we have you in the studio talking about this, Halloween is close. What to you makes a good ghost story? Oh my gosh. Um, for me, it's, it's something that brings the listener into the experience. Whether that's, I mean, whoever the audience member is, whether it's for a movie, whether it's for a book, a podcast. Like I, I love the idea of somehow being involved. And I think a great story regardless of the medium does that and it it makes me feel like you know if i'm watching a movie by myself and then i'm suddenly aware of what's behind me or what's outside my window or if i'm reading a book and i hear something outside you know and it's it it, just that that kind of impulse and i think that you know it's an alchemy of audience and content that is so potent and it doesn't happen often it doesn't happen all the time but when it does it's just magical and i i think uh you know I should be so lucky to, to have someone have that experience with my book. Well, I'm going to totally be honest with you. I finished reading your book. I'm on to the next one that I'm going to read for a couple podcasts down the line. Yeah. And the setting is like the Wyoming Wild West in the early days of Prairie. And this woman has to go into the pine forest <laughs> to chop wood. And she's talking about the trees and stuff. And all I'm thinking is something's going to jump out. <laughs> oh, man. There you go. There you go. So there you go. Your ghost story stayed with me. Jessica is going to stick with you for a bit. That's awesome. Thank so you. So we've been talking about the remaking Clay McLeod Chapman. Thank you for stopping by and talking to us. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thank you. A pair of creepy eyes stare at you from the spine of A Cosmology of Monsters, the debut horror novel from Sean Hamill. The story features a monster that stalks a family across generations. The monster in this case is very real, but also serves as a metaphor for the family's mental health struggles. Sean swung by our studios while he was in town for Comic-Con earlier this month 
to talk about his unique blend of horror and literary fiction. Well, I'd always run, wanted to write a novel, sort of, you know, one of those big sprawling family novels like, you know, that Meg Wolitzer or John Irving writes. And so, um, but I didn't have my hook. You know, I wanted to do about a family running a business. So whenever I, and I always loved going to haunted houses in my 20s, I had a group of friends I would always go with in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so, like, I just... In my first semester at the Iowa Writers Workshop, I had like the worst case of writer's block I'd ever had. And I was walking my dog. And finally, those two ideas just kind of collided the haunted house and the family novel. And originally, there wasn't supposed to be like real horror in it. But as I, you know, started dealing with the metaphor of what haunts the haunters and everything, it just felt like a natural extension of the story I was already telling. So it it, it just kind of flowed. Right. And the result is a family saga, a coming of age story that just so happens to have real life monsters in it. Yes. Yeah. And were you one of those kids who imagined monsters in the closet? Oh, yeah, very much so. I I slept with a light on uh, probably through junior high (laughs) with the door open, the bathroom light on. Uh, I remember having to sleep on the couch for a week after I read Stephen King's story, The Boogeyman, which is, you know, there's always something in the closet in that short story. That story scared the hell out of me. (laughs) Oh, sorry. It's a podcast. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) And and like the haunted house that the family runs in the book, I sort of felt like the reader gets to walk through each phase of Noah's life kind of in the dark as like as the larger picture starts to unfold. And you're always waiting for the monster to kind of jump out. Literally and figuratively. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I um yeah, the kind of building around that idea of the haunted house and the tour of the immersive horror experience kind of helped um structure it you know because you've got these separate rooms and the separate sections and everything so the book doesn't shy away from people suffering mental illness and and the issues that that can take on a family and the family members is it safe to say that those real life demons are a lot of things that people deal with like throughout their lifetimes. Those are sometimes the real monsters in somebody's life. Yeah. Yeah. And it was something that was really important to me to write about because it's something I've been around my whole life, like just by luck of the draw most of my family and a a lot of my social circle just happened to be dealing with this stuff all the time. Um, And it felt like a really interesting, um, approach you know dealing with it uh, i i feel like genre fiction kind of can cut straight to the heart of these bigger questions in a way that maybe contemporary fiction has a little bit of a harder time with um so using horror to kind of just attack that and like treat the monster you know and, and so but but not make the mental illness something that goes away once the monster is vanquished you know make it something that's that's you deal with daily regardless you know that it's never going to go away um and that's something i hadn't seen in a lot of genre fiction so it was important to me to sort of address it like use it as metaphor and subtext but also sort of not make it go away once the problem is resolved or or make it a problem that's not resolvable you know what i mean Mm -hmm. let's talk about the monster itself okay where did the idea for what it looked like, the world it lived in, did that just come to you? Is it Did it come to you over time? It was something that evolved over time. Uh, originally, the monster was, was sort of, I knew it was going to have the red robe. I liked sort of the reverse Little Red Riding Hood thing because, you know, it's sort of the monster is wolf-like, but it's wearing the red robe. So sort of the that playing with that imagery. But originally, it was supposed to look a little more bat-like, but then... Uh, <laughs> My wife and I had just uh, adopted a dog and um, he was a rescue and he was really um, skittish. So I and I 
he was actually my wife's dog, but because I was in grad school, I was the one who was home with him all day. So sort of me and him gradually warming up to each other and him learning to trust me and everything like definitely uh, informed a lot of the monsters early appearance and, and body language and stuff like I was taking what I was seeing every day and just kind of putting it on the page. Um, so I, I, I think that's a lot of it as far as like the world. That was something that, yeah, it, it I kind of came to, I guess, instinctively, like I just as the story sort of unfolded, I kind of followed it where it went. And for some reason, like, I don't want to give too much away, but that world uh, was something that I I didn't necessarily plan on, but I knew there was going to be a world. So I was discovering stuff as Noah was discovering it. The story progresses through time, but there are these interludes that are thrown in that the first time you come across them, you're kind of like, what's this, (laughs) you know, but it makes sense when you get to the end of the book. Not going to give anything away. We don't do spoilers here. Why, though, did you structure it in that way? Uh, that was another thing that came instinctively. Like there was, uh, whenever I was composing the book, like I, there, I, there came a point where another voice started kind of speaking, um, and I was like, "Oh, this is really interesting. It's doing something different. It's, it, and." So I I don't think it's giving anything away to say. So the book is narrated in first person by Noah, uh, but each of the interludes sort of gives you a dip into a different psyche. So a different member of the family is kind of the point of view character in each of these interludes. And since this is essentially a novel about a family who doesn't know how to talk to each other, it's a great way to sort of um, give the reader some information about what each member of the family is struggling with uh, at a particular point in time. Um, and and sort of also do some foreshadowing and stuff because it gives the reader some information that Noah at that point in the story doesn't necessarily have. Um, so they they start knowing things before he does, which kind of can uh, create some tension. But it also does a lot of, the, I think, the emotional heavy lifting because this is a family that's very repressed and doesn't know how to express themselves to each other. But they... I could be emotionally honest in those sections and a little more bald in, you know, whatever everybody's feeling. And I thought it was really cool, too, that towards the end, one of these interludes, it's done in reverse. It's white on black. Now, was that your decision? Was that the publisher's decision? That I'm trying to remember. I think it was my editor's idea. Like, I think... So the, the the interludes have a different text style across the board uh, from the text of the normal book. And so whenever we decided on that particular one, my only note was, well, you've got to make sure it doesn't look like the other interludes because it's a little bit different in its nature. And that's what they came back with. And I was like, perfect. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah, it's cool because you, you, you look at the, the spine of the book and the, the little eyes look at it. You right. <laughs> and then you look to where the pages are. You're like, oh, I wonder what that is. It's like a, a little... Surprise waiting for you towards the yes. end. <laughs> so you mentioned, or we both mentioned that haunted a haunted house plays a big part. This is the family business. They run a haunted house. Yeah. You've done a lot of haunted houses. Yes. So would you ever want to do your own haunted house? Um, I don't think so. I, you know, and I haven't been to one in a long time because once I left Texas, um, my wife and I are both cowards. So neither of us wants to. We, I, I always went with braver people, you know, and I would kind of have my head buried in a friend's arm most of the way. Uh, and my wife is even more afraid of them than I am. So we haven't, I haven't been to one since like 2013. But um, 
I think I would I would help a friend do one, but I don't think that mounting that production by myself, like I know after doing the research just how much work goes into it, and I'd rather write a novel. <laughs> that seems like less work than the amazing stuff that these people have to do to create that experience. I'm with you. I don't do haunted houses either. <laughs> now that you have this book out into the world, what are you planning to do next? You're going to stick within this blend of horror literary fiction or, or try to spread your wings? I mean, I, I, I'm working on something now that sort of stays in that same hybrid genre, maybe leaning a little more into the, the fantastical than the frightening, but still in that same sort of, um, I'm calling it suburban gothic <laughs> mode. Um, but I would definitely, you know, I, I'm, I'm also trying to kind of dip my toes into some other media. I, you know, I haven't broken through yet, but hopefully Hopefully I'll be able to kind of play around with some other stuff. I'd love to, you know, work with graphic novels, comic books, you know, TV, film, anything I can get into, any medium for storytelling, I'd be happy to give a shot. Before I let you go, for readers who probably won't get it right away and may have to turn to a dictionary... What is a cosmology? So, um, I mean, it has a couple of different definitions, but the the, the main one is basically it's um, the study of the uh, origin, life, and death of a universe, and sort of the 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 forces that govern that process. So, um, sort of the 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 big laws that make up you know how the universe works. So, does that apply in your book to the monster world or the human world? Or the family unit. I mean, I think more the family unit. That was sort of the idea, the central, because I had the title right away. So it was as soon as I knew what the book was, I was like, oh, here's the title. Um, So to me, it it really is about like the beginning of this family and sort of tracking them over time and seeing because you see how the family really starts and then you carry it through towards a conclusion, you know. so to me, that was sort of the, the the idea and also the idea, you know, the book is somewhat indebted to H.P. Lovecraft and he had all these monsters who were kind of interrelated. So they're kind of family. So the idea that each member of the family is kind of a different sort of monster too, metaphorically speaking, at least to themselves. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's really more about the family, although it can be applied to the monsters world as well. You know, we we didn't even really get into the the H.P. Lovecraft stuff. And I have to admit, I've never read any of his work and so your book was kind of like a crash course <laughs> in trying to figure out what this was all about yeah yeah he's um he's an interesting voice because he he had such uh an interesting vision of the universe so unique and but he's also just so uh it's like he's more important than he is fun to read for me at least um because he has these great ideas but i feel like a lot of artists have gone further with what he did sort of like how tolkien's wonderful but a lot of like more natural storytellers have picked up the fantasy baton since then and kind of written more readable fantasy novels i feel like lovecraft's kind of the same way like they've been able to build on him without necessarily taking on his more problematic aspects like he was you know a a racist a xenophobe like and to sort of pull the 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 good out of that you know the not the good out of racism but the good out of lovecraft and sort of leave that other stuff behind um has you know was something i I was sort of interested in doing and and looking at that on a personal scale versus a cosmic scale sort of like a stepping stone for for other writers to come i guess is what you're saying i I hope (laughs) yeah it would be nice to find out i'd influence somebody else's take on lovecraft yeah that'd be awesome (laughs) i guess that's like the highest praise you could could get as a writer exactly (laughs) so we've been talking with sean hamill the book is a cosmology of monsters thank you for stopping by and talking to us thank you so much for having me
that's this week's show. Hope you enjoyed our trip to the dark side. Next time, we dive into some YA releases that appeal to readers both young and old. Until then, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Now, I'm going to get out of here while I still can. <laughs>